Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's take our copies of God's Word and return to the first chapter of the book of Romans in your New Testament. Our text today, Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 17. Title of the message today, Paul's Heart Laid Bare. Now you remember that the book of Romans is actually a letter we call an epistle written by Paul to the Christians in the church in the city of Rome. And at this point in his ministry, Paul had never had the privilege or opportunity to visit or even meet these people face to face. And yet Paul's heart and their hearts were knit together by the bond of the Holy Spirit because of their shared and common faith in Jesus Christ. Now, usually when we're getting to know someone or a group of people, as it's happening here in the introduction in chapter one, uh, we hold back a little bit. We make sure that the other party is as invested in the relationship as we are before we tell too much about ourselves, especially our personal business. Well, Paul throws all of those rules of etiquette out the window. In fact, he, in the very first chapter, just shares his heart for ministry. And that heart becomes very clear as we'll walk through our text today. There are five words, all of them adjectives, that we'll see describe Paul's heart. And I pray will be adjectives that describe the heart of our church and every individual member of it. So let's read Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 17. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, Paul says, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. Always in my prayers making requests, if perhaps now at last by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. That is that I might be encouraged with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I had planned to come to you and have been prevented so far so that I may obtain some fruit from among you also even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation, both to the Greeks and the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of this, his perfect word. Now, the five adjectives that describe Paul's heart are thankful, prayerful, hopeful, eager, and bold. And first, we see Paul had a thankful heart. Now, mark that, because I'm convinced that a thankful heart is the key to a productive and a long-term ministry of any kind. It's particularly noteworthy that Paul's thankfulness came from a life that was not easy. In fact, Paul, after he was converted, lived a very difficult life. Did you know that four of the 13 New Testament letters that we have recorded in our New Testament canon from Paul's pen were written while he was in jail? Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. He was often persecuted, stoned, shipwrecked, chased out of town, 
At one point in his life, he had a bounty on his life, but throughout he remained thankful. And he wrote that all Christians should be thankful in all things. Now he didn't say be thankful for all things. You stub your toe in the middle of the night. I don't think the Lord expects you to lift up a prayer of thanks for that stubbed toe. But it means in every situation of life, whatever life throws your way, you don't lose your thankful spirit. Paul never did apparently. And I think that was one of the secrets to his long ministry. Now I had intended to read to you every verse in the New Testament that illustrated Paul's thankful spirit. But as I was writing them down this week, I, I remembered a quote from Inigo Montoya when he said, there is too much, let me sum up. <laughs> and so in summary, Paul's thankfulness can be divided into two broad categories. Number one, he was thankful for the work of Jesus Christ in his own life. That is his salvation, his being called to be an apostle and how God was using him for his own glory. And the second broad category of Paul's thankfulness is that he was thankful for the work of Christ in the lives of other Christians. And that is almost all of the verses in the New Testament, one of those two categories. Let me give you a sampling. 1 Corinthians 15, 57, Paul writes, thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 2.14, now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. 2 Corinthians 9.15, thanks be to God for his indescribable gifts. Philippians 1.18, what then, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. That shows his thankful heart. So Paul was thankful. Look what he says in verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the world. Now, they did not have internet in those days, didn't even have telephones yet, but Paul had heard mouth to mouth, church to church, Christian to Christian about the faithfulness of the Roman believers. Now, we don't know exactly how the Roman church was established. It was not through Paul's ministry. We suspect there were Christians on the day of Pentecost who were saved, who were discipled by the apostles, who went back to Rome and established this church. But their faithfulness is Paul's point. They have kept on in the faith and they were prospering in the faith and they were growing in grace. And he says he hears about it wherever he goes. Now Paul spent most of his life within about 50 miles of the Mediterranean Ocean on all sides. And so that was his world and wherever he went, he heard good news about the Roman church. I think what Paul was saying is that he was grateful for their good reputation. We just finished the study of the book of Proverbs this summer. And one of my favorite Proverbs is Proverbs chapter 22, verse 1, which says, A good name is more to be desired than great wealth. It speaks of the reputation. It would be better to have a good reputation than lots of money. That's true of a person, true of an individual Christian. I think it's true of a church. And I have to say, of all the things that I'm thankful for concerning First Baptist Keller, the thing I think I'm most grateful for is your reputation that wherever I go in the world, certainly in the state of Texas, and uh, someone says, where do you go to church? I'll say, I'm a member of First Baptist Keller. And do you know what almost always happens? They say, those people love the Lord. Those people love the word of God. And I'm so grateful for that. What a joy for a pastor to hear that. But I would say to you, be careful. Guard that reputation because a reputation sometimes takes decades to earn, but it can be lost in just a moment. Be careful. But Paul was thankful that at that moment in time, the Roman church was serving the Lord and other people knew about it. And that gave him a thankful heart.
And because he was thankful, the way Paul expressed thanks was through prayer, which is our next adjective. Paul was not only thankful, he was prayerful. Look at verse nine. He says, for God, whom I serve in my spirit. And Paul wanted them to know right away that he was sincere. To serve with your spirit means you're doing it for no other reason than you want to please God. You're doing it with your whole heart, in other words. He serves him in his spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his son. And he says, God is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you always in my prayers, requesting if perhaps now at last by the will of God, I will succeed in coming to you. See, because Paul had heard of the faith of the Roman saints, they had often been on his lips in prayer to the Father. And Paul was so zealous to convey to these Christians at Rome that he often prayed for them, that he calls God himself as a witness to the veracity of his claim. And specifically what he's praying for, he says, is that one day he would be able to visit these believers in person. Well, we read in the book of Acts that God answered that prayer. It's interesting that God sometimes answers our prayers in a very different fashion than we imagine he will. Paul did not go to Rome as a tourist. He went as a prisoner of the government. Do you make it a habit to, prayer for, to pray for other believers and other churches? I've attempted to do that more in recent years, and I was inspired to do so by a pastor friend of mine who lives in Houston, Texas. Every so often, I will be uh, getting ready to preach or sitting in the prayer room with our staff before one of our meetings, and my phone will buzz with a text message from this other pastor. And he'll say something very simple like, the members of our church just prayed for you and your congregation that the Lord would bless you in the services today, that he would be glorified through your services. And that's just a small gesture, but I, that's moving to me, to know that other Christians in other places, and I get cards and letters from churches that we support around the country and around the world, and they say, we are praying for you, and I believe that they are. But are we praying for them? We should. Sometimes I, I think uh, we get in an insulated bubble and we think that we're the only Christians in Texas. But we're not even the only true Christian church in this city. There are churches all around us who are serving the Lord and, and we ought to be thankful for them and we ought to pray for them. And so Paul was a thankful person, made him a prayerful person. But next we see that Paul was a hopeful person, optimistic. And I don't mean that he was naive or Pollyannish. He certainly understood pain and suffering and he knew that no one gets out of this life alive. But he was a hopeful person. Look at verse 11. He said, for I long to see you that I might impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. That is, that I might be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. The saddest sort of a human being is one who has ceased to hope. That is, they don't have anything to look forward to. And that person almost always shrivels on the vine and soon dies. But when you read Paul's letters, right up into the day that he died, he's always alluding to possibilities in the future. Sometimes he says, I'm hoping to go to Corinth and minister there. Here in Romans, he says he had a desire to carry the gospel to Spain. But God often changed those plans. God has the right to do that, doesn't he? James, the brother of Jesus, said it's not wrong to plan and strategize. He says, but when we say we're going to go here or there in the future and do business, or have a meeting. He says, say it this way, if the Lord wills. And so, as you know, we, we have 
committees that plan and staff that strategize how to reach this community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing wrong with that. So long as we understand God is sovereign and we're not. Wherever he says stop or go in a different direction, our obligation, our duty is to submit to that leadership and put our plans aside. One of those times is recorded in the book of Acts. Paul wanted to go over to Asia to take the gospel. But every time he tried to get in one of these regions, the Lord stopped him. The Lord stopped him. And then finally he had a vision in the night. A man from Macedonia said, come over and help us. We call it the Macedonian call. And that's how the gospel first came to Europe. And so Paul was hopeful and prayerful and thankful, but he also was submissive uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and so uh, we see Paul visiting the church at Rome later in the book of Acts, but it was in God's timing, in God's way, and not Paul's. Well, why was Paul so keen to go to Rome? He says for two reasons. Number one, he wanted to bless them. He wanted to establish them, he said. God had given Paul revelation to help establish the church, those foundational doctrines that we still teach to this day. And the Romans apparently had not been fully established in those doctrines. So he wanted to be a blessing to them. But notice humility. He also says, I want to receive a blessing to you. That is thoroughly biblical, dear ones. Two weeks ago, our message was from Hebrews 10, 24, which says to spur one another on to love and good deeds. We need one another in the body of Christ to spur one another and encourage one another. In other words, mutual encouragement is part and parcel of what it means to belong to a local congregation. Again, in the Proverbs, Proverbs 27, 17 says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Paul knew that even though he was an apostle, he needed encouragement. And your pastors need encouragement. Your Sunday school teachers need encouragement. And you need encouragement. Really, that's our philosophy behind our mission trips here. We're, we're constantly bringing groups before you. We just had a group that got back from Alaska working with uh, some missionaries there. And, and you say, why do we go on these short-term mission trips? Seems like a lot of money. Seems like a lot of expense. And, and we know that we're not going to fundamentally change things up there by staying a few days. But the primary purpose we go is to encourage those who've invested their lives in those areas, that they are loved and that they're not forgotten. I have three rules when I talk to a missions team that's about to go out from our church. Number one, don't make the missionary's life harder for you being there. You're not there as a tourist. You're not there to serve. You're there to serve and to encourage those folks. And number two, while you're there, work hard. If the task is to split wood or wash windows, do that as unto the Lord. And number three, be an encouragement. Make them sad to, leave you, to see you go. When you get on the plane, they ought not to go, glad that's over. <laughs> and so our task is to do that with other churches, as Paul's doing here in this letter, and it's to do that with one another. And don't you find, if you've been on a mission trip in recent years, you're the one that gets encouraged the most. You come home more zealous to serve in your local church than when you're left. So that's why those trips, I believe, are worthwhile. But because of Paul's thankful heart, prayerful spirit, hopeful attitude, we find a man, even who's growing old at this time, eager to serve those that Jesus died for. He was eager. Look at verse 13. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, 
that often I had planned to come to you and had been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also just as those, the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to the Greeks and the barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. Hear this, so for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. It's always refreshing to be around someone who's eager. They're excited about their job. Uh, they're, they're not doing it by rote memory or they're not going through the motions. They want to do everything and they do it with zeal and enthusiasm. Paul lived his life like that. It wasn't fake, it was real. This was his heart. Now we have to be careful about eagerness. Sometimes it can get us in trouble. Um, we've all been around that young hire at work, right out of college. He's eager to please the boss. He's eager to start his climb up the corporate ladder. Heard about a young man, got his first job. He was always the first one to work, always the last one to leave. He was showing the boss how eager he was. And he was looking for that one opportunity to show the boss he was worthy of more responsibility. And so one Friday evening it happened. Everybody had gone home to start the weekend. He was left behind as usual. And wouldn't you know it, the boss's light is on in his office. And so pretty soon he heard the boss grumbling and he went out and the boss was standing in front of the paper shredding machine. And he was hitting all the buttons, couldn't get it to come on, couldn't get it to work right. And the young man said, sir, may I be of assistance? He said, well, I certainly hope so. My secretary went home early and uh, I can't get this machine to work. Can you do it? He said, well, I think I can. And the man stood, stood back and the, the eager employee started pressing buttons with confidence until he hit the green one and the machine buzzed on and took the paper in. And he was so proud of himself until uh, the boss said, now I need 10 copies of that. <laughs> so eagerness, if it's not focused correctly, is my point, can get us in trouble. Paul's eagerness was focused in the right direction. It was not an eagerness for people to recognize him. It's not an eagerness to exude power, display power, to put others down. It was always an eagerness to serve the church. Now, eagerness to serve the church is refreshing. In fact, one of the most refreshing things I ever hear is when I'm in a meeting of potential church members. And they always have questions, as they should. But what is really refreshing is when I call for questions is that potential member to say, Pastor, where can we serve? What are the needs of the church? Where can we get plugged in rather than what do you have for me? How are you going to wow me? And this is the kind of eagerness that uh, the Lord honors. Well, the question is, why was Paul so eager to serve the Roman Christians? He never met them. Well, verse 14, he just comes out and says it. He says, because I'm under obligation. Now that word obligation, sort of an archaic word, we don't use it too much anymore. It simply means I'm in debt. If you have more obligation than you have income, you're in trouble, right? Well, Paul viewed his life and he says, I have obligation. Well, who's he obligated to? Who's in debt to? He says, both to the Greeks and the barbarians. That includes every human on planet earth. Because from a Greek perspective, and the Romans came out of that Greek culture and they understood the Greek language and that's how they educated themselves. That was the language of the educated and erudite. You were a Greek. 
And everyone else who couldn't read Greek or speak Greek was in the category of a barbarian. That doesn't sound very kind, does it? Because the word barbarian is a pejorative term today. We think of someone who's sort of a knuckle dragger, not the brightest tool in the toolbox, not the sharpest knife in the drawer. But, but that's how they thought of the rest of the world. They were the elite. We speak Greek. We're educated. And the rest of the world are barbarians. You know where that word came from, barbarian? It's an automatopoeia word, one of those words that sound like what it is, like the buzz of a bee. They spoke Greek, and to them, that was the most beautiful language in the world, so musical in their ears. But then they heard a foreigner speaking, it sounded to them like bar, 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 bar. And so the word barbarian came from that. Well, Paul said that he wanted to preach the gospel to the Greek and the barbarian. That covered all the bases. Now, in other books like 1 Corinthians, he divides the world the way a Jewish person would, between Jew and Gentile. But the point is the same. He felt obligation to all people everywhere, wherever he went, to preach the gospel. And that's the real reason why he wanted to go to Rome. He wanted to preach the gospel in Rome. We think, well, these people were already saved. Why would they need to hear the gospel? And if you don't hear anything else I have to say today, hear this very closely. Christians need to hear the gospel as much as lost people. Because the gospel informs every decision of our life. And we need to hear over and again that we were sinners separated from God. That we were enemies of God and we weren't pursuing him. He pursued us. And when he found us, you know what he found, Paul says? People who were dead in their trespasses and sins. The book of Ephesians says, even though we were dead in trespasses and sins, he chose to love us anyway, didn't he? And through his spirit, he breathed spiritual life into us. And someone who loved Jesus and loved us told us that good news. And when we heard it, the Holy Spirit quickened our mind and gave us spiritual sight for the first time. And we were granted faith and repentance. Don't ever forget that. Paul never got over it. And so he rehearsed it to himself and to every congregation he ministered to over and over again. And so Paul says he wanted to preach this gospel to the Greeks and barbarians, to the wise and the foolish, the educated and the ignorant. And I think that verse explains a lot about the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. It certainly explains his boldness in the face of persecution. Remember I said he was shipwrecked and beaten and tortured and run out of town. How could Paul continue to get up off the mat and do it again? Well, he, he tells us. This is the last adjective in our sermon today which describes Paul's life and ministry. He was bold. He was bold. Verse 16. He says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For it is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous one will live by faith. I said last Sunday in the introduction that one of the reasons I was so excited about starting this two and a half year series through the book of Romans is that God has been pleased historically to bring about great movements of his spirit through the preaching of the book of Romans and the reading of the book of Romans. You know that Martin Luther was the instrument God used to bring about the Protestant Reformation and Luther was moved by the teachings of Augustine, who was moved by this verse. But the righteous one will live 
by faith. He came to understand that that righteousness is not any righteousness of himself, but is the righteousness of God imputed to the sinner. And that, he says, is the gospel essence that he was so desirous to preach wherever he went. And he said, I'm not ashamed of it. I'm going to preach it loud and clear in full dosage. Well, you might have a question in your mind. Why, why would Paul feel the necessity to even say he wasn't ashamed? That seems obvious. Why, what potentially could cause Paul to be ashamed of the gospel? Well, I think it's because he had seen people's negative reactions to it for a long period of time. And turn quickly to 1 Corinthians, just a few pages over to the right in your Bible. You'll come to 1 Corinthians, which was another epistle written to another church who had all kinds of problems, but Paul loved them too. And in the very first chapter of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he's explaining to them God's eternal redemptive plan. And the way that God has chosen in his sovereignty to perpetuate the gospel message from city to city, region to region, country to country, epic of history to epic of history, down through the ages, is the preaching of the gospel. He calls it the word of the cross. It means the same thing. It's what Jude meant when he said that we are to earnestly contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. It's the, simply the content of the gospel. That we were sinners, lost, dead in sins. God broke into human history through the person and work of Jesus who lived a perfect life, died a substitutionary death on the cross and literally rose from the dead. That's the essence of the gospel. Look what he says about it, verse 18. He says, for the word of the cross, the essence of the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's the same message. Same message Peter preached on the day of Pentecost when 3,000 were saved, but don't forget hundreds of thousands rejected it. But a small group compared to the big group were saved, 3,000 that day. And Paul says he knows that when he preaches, not everyone's going to believe it. In fact, the majority of people are going to reject it. But for those that are saved, it's the most glorious truth in the world. Verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And hear this, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. And so the Greeks are always patting themselves on the back, what great philosophers they are, how intelligent they are. But guess what? They didn't come to know God through philosophy. It was a dead end. For indeed, verse 22, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul says that God has chosen in his sovereignty to use the means of the foolishness of proclaiming the gospel to get people into the kingdom. Now, he didn't say he uses foolish preaching. We've got quite enough of that in the world today. He uses the foolishness as the world looks at what we say and do here and goes, that's nuts. Greeks especially, they say that they think that a God would become a human and love them. Their gods didn't love them. Their gods were mean-spirited and childish, self-interested. To think about a God who would 
die in the place of a sinful human was, was foolishness to them, laughable. But then the Jews, of, of whom Paul was one, their problem with the gospel was that it tripped them up. It was a stumbling block, Paul said. And what was the stumbling block was the fact that they had to repent of sins the same way their worst Gentile neighbor did. You see, many Jewish people believed in something we would call today as this, salvation by genetics. They thought by virtue of being genetically Jewish and certainly culturally and religiously Jewish, they had an inside track to heaven. All these Gentiles were fodder for the flames of hell, but we're God's chosen people. And then John the Baptist shows up and says to God's chosen people, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They didn't like it, but some heard it and the Holy Spirit opened their eyes and they were saved. And friends, it's true to this good day. When we preach the gospel, not nearly everyone's gonna like it. When you tell people they're sinners and on their way to hell, they don't like it. As we'll see later on in, in, in the book of Romans, when you say that Jesus is the only way, they're gonna call you a bigot. They're gonna call you closed-minded and small-brained. But that's our task. And that's what Paul says he was eager to do, to go to Rome, the most advanced, sophisticated culture on planet Earth, and preach the foolishness of the gospel. Why? Because it works. And when the Holy Spirit chooses to save, he will save. And that is the only means that he's chosen, is the preaching of the gospel. So I want to encourage you today, if you're tempted to believe what the lost and dying world is telling you, that you're wasting your time here serving the Lord, I want you to be encouraged by the Apostle Paul. Here's a man that had all the credentials. His resume was pristine. He was on his way to the corner office, and yet when he saw the risen Lord Jesus face to face, all of that went out the window. He fell to his knees and he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? There are other Christians, not just Paul. There are other Christians in every generation who have been faithful. There are other Christians in this room. They're going through exactly what you're going through and they're remaining faithful. There are other churches in other cities who are remaining faithful. Let that be encouragement to you. Brother Casey Lewis is here today. Brother Casey and Amy seven years ago, went out to replant a church in Euless, Texas. And they determined to do what Paul did, to preach the true gospel in true dosage. And I'm here today, the Lord has blessed it. Now they're not the biggest church in Euless, but if I lived in Euless and I was looking for a church to preach the true gospel, I'd go to Foundation Baptist Church. And I'm thankful for our staff who as iron sharpens irons, demand of one another that we don't water it down. And we teach the full gospel in full doses. Do you know how you know someone is not ashamed of the gospel? Because they don't hold anything back. We're not looking to hurt people's feelings. Here's something you need to know. The true gospel is offensive. When you tell people that a righteous God holds them accountable for every sin they've ever committed in deed or thought or attitude, and that one day they'll stand before him. And if they have not bowed their knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, they will be cast into everlasting darkness. That's not a message everybody loves. But you know who loves it? Those who are being saved, who the Lord in his sovereignty puts his finger on 
and grants faith and repentance, we know it to be the absolute truth, don't we? And we celebrate it every time we come together here. The work of the Lord Jesus Christ, his perfect sinless life, his substitutionary atoning death on the cross, and his literal bodily resurrection. To the world it's foolishness, but to those who's being saved, it's the power of God. And Paul recognized in this church at Rome, brothers and sisters. They might have lived hundreds of miles away, but they believed in the same Lord Jesus. So let's commit as a family. Let's be like Paul. Let's be thankful. Thankful for all the good things in our life, but thankful that he has chosen at this moment in history to give us a place of service. Let's be prayerful for one another and for every true Christian in church around the world. Let's be hopeful. And I said Paul was hopeful to the day he died. He knew that his time was out. He said, I'm ready to be poured out. That didn't crush his hope. In fact, that was the greatest moment of hope in his life because he says to live is Christ and to die is what? It's gain. Be eager. Eager to serve. Don't, don't be a Christian that has to have their fingers pried off the pew to go serve somewhere. Be ready and eager and volunteer. And, and then when you get there, when you get ready to serve, God puts you to a new place. Be bold. Don't hold back the truth. Just preach it, teach it in full dosage. Let's pray for God's help. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the ministry and the heart of the Apostle Paul that is laid bare in these verses that we've studied this morning. Lord, we know Paul's not the hero of this book. You are. Jesus is. But Lord, in your sovereignty, you choose to use men and women who submit themselves totally and completely to your Lordship. Lord, I, I want to be a man like that. Lord, I want to see this church be a church like that that's not interested in our fame or our own glory or our own enrichment. Our one desire is to magnify the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you for other Christians and other churches in this very city and state and nation and world who are attempting to do the same thing in their geographical context. I pray you'd bless every one of them, Lord, and may Jesus alone get the glory for whatever good you accomplish through us all. In his name I pray, amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.